The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. If you have it, say amen. amen. The word of the Lord says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they've repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, seeking to rest, but finds none. And then it says... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Kind of a complex text today, a little little perplexing, isn't it? So let's just review a little bit. Um, Remember where we've been here in Matthew. Remember that. Jesus has gone around ministering, and as he has, uh, the religious leaders, uh, this group called the the Pharisees and then the the Bible scholars, uh, which would be the scribes, they have, I think, been a bit jealous of Jesus, and Jesus has not been exactly what they were looking for. And so tensions have been rising between Jesus and these religious leaders. Now remember, this is very important because the kingdom of God is the key theme in the book of Matthew. And so Jesus has come as Israel's long-awaited Messiah King to inaugurate God's rule, God's kingdom upon the earth. But here's the deal. This is why the, some of the Jews are so, so upset. Jesus is not the Messiah they've been waiting on. They just had a misperception of what the Messiah should come and do. They had their own view of what the Messiah should look like. See, what they wanted was a Messiah who would wipe out their enemies. Come and just obliterate Rome there in the first century. But what did Jesus do? Did he come to wipe out Israel's enemies? No, he came to love them. He came in humility. And he came to ultimately lay down his life for Israel's enemies. Consequently, as is often the case, uh, people reject, you know, uh, if you don't meet their expectations, it's like they reject you. And that's exactly what they did with Jesus. 
The, the Jews, by and large, rejected Jesus because he is not what they wanted. And so we saw it got so bad that it's getting so bad that earlier in chapter 12, you might remember when Jesus was in the temple, the Pharisees were plotting to take his life. And we know that eventually they succeeded that. So just a few verses up, this is the message from, uh, I think, three weeks ago. A few passages up. Remember, uh, a, uh, there, there's a group of people who bring a man who is demon-possessed, and because of that possession, he is blind and he is mute, and they bring him to Jesus. You remember, remember that. And Jesus, what's he do? He heals and delivers the man. And you would think this would be a celebratory moment, Right? And to be sure, a crowd of people are celebrating and they're marveling over what Jesus has done. But you've always got somebody in the group who has to ruin the party, right? And that's who the Pharisees were. And so what did they, you remember what they accused Jesus of? He cast out this demon. They said, oh, he cast out demons by the power of Satan. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' rebuttal to that. And so he showed through his argument that he's not of Satan, but in fact, it is the Pharisees who are doing the bidding of the devil. So that's, I think that should catch us up. Today, the conversation continues between Jesus and the religious leaders. And there's, remember, the crowd of people, they're all around still listening to this. And here's the point of the message today. This is so important. Jesus reveals the danger of reformation void of relationship. He reveals the danger of reformation or change, or you could say moralism, void of a relationship with him. I've told you many times that I started out, goodness, when I'm almost 45, when I was 18, I started doing prison ministry. The first time I went to West Liberty Penitentiary and preached to a group of about probably 150 men, I was scared to death when I went in, but I came out changed and I was hooked. And let me tell you what I love about prison ministry. You do not have to convict or convince a convict that he is that he's in need of a savior. You do not have to convince a convict of their own depravity. And so they are ripe to hear the word of God and to hear about the goodness of Jesus. You know who's difficult to minister to? It's the moralists, the religious. Because they think, listen, my life's clean enough. I'm, I mean, I know those people need a savior. But listen, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a good person, Right? It's really hard to reach people like that. So to these first century Jews, this crowd of people in our text, to them the Bible teachers and the Pharisees who are against Jesus right now, they are the most moral, godly people on the planet. That's who they aspire to be like. I mean, these are people who rigorously try and follow the word of God. Their commitment, as a matter of fact, to the rigid standards of their religion and traditions and ethics, they go unmatched. But listen, their moralism, their religiosity has blinded them to their own depravity. 
Because though they look good on the outside, Jesus said later on uh, in a conversation with him, he'll say, listen, you're whitewashed tombs. You're this, uh, you, you know, you're full of dead, deadness on the inside, essentially. And so they, they had all these rules and they were convinced of their own self-righteousness. Not realizing that there are none righteous. No, not one. There are none righteous enough to earn their way to God and salvation. But their self-righteousness blinded them to the, to, you know, they could not see that they needed Jesus Christ. They could not see the need for a Messiah who would come and lay his life down for the sins of his people. They just thought, listen, we're good in that area. We just need you to come wipe out Rome. And so let's start unpacking this by looking at the request. Jesus has made a compelling argument. Remember, testifying that he's doing the work of God by the power of the Spirit. And that the Pharisees are corrupt to the core. But the Bible teachers here and the, and the religious leaders, listen, they know there's a crowd of people who have witnessed this great miracle. So they can't just take Jesus out. I mean, they're frustrated and they're fuming. But they've got to handle this a different way. And so they just ask what seems to be a, an innocent request. Look at verse 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answer Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We wish to see a sign from you. Now this may seem like an honest request, but you know what it is? It's a smokescreen. You know the people, don't you? I mean, when they get around you and they, they know you're a Christian and they start acting a little religious. I was in Walmart once and the, the, I was talking to the cashier and she, uh, or before I said anything, uh, I said, how are your day? I asked her, how's your day going? She goes, well, you know, it's, it's good, but listen, I can't wait till tonight. I'm going to get plastered and this and this. And she goes, what do you do for a living? I go, ma'am, you don't want to know. And then she immediately goes like this. She's like, uh, I tell her I'm a pastor. And she says, well, I pray every night. It's like smoke screen, right? <laughs> like I want to, there you go. But, but what, the, what the Pharisees are doing in front of the crowd, they're wanting to look like they're possibly okay with Jesus to the crowd. But they're trying to entrap him. They want him dead. And so that's what's going on here. Here's what they're asking. Think of this. Jesus has gone around. How many miracles have we witnessed as we've read through Matthew uh, you know, like 8 through 12? Over and over. I mean, multiple healings, numerous uh, casting out of demons, brought a dead girl back to life, calmed the winds and the waves. And the Pharisees are like, hey, you know what? I'm not so sure you're the Messiah. I just need a sign. It's like, really? See, they have their own perception of what the Messiah should look like and how he should work. And even though they've seen all these miracles, they're like, if you'll do this one more thing for us, then perhaps we'll follow you. In other words, you march Jesus to the beat of my drum. Now, before we give them too difficult of the time, the Pharisees, let's just... Remember how we've probably all done, done this at some point. It's really easy to fall into this trap of wanting Jesus to work according to our expectations. Jesus, I'll follow you if you do X, Y, and Z. 
If you just show me, Lord. At times, we uh, tend to create our own versions of Jesus, right? Just like the Pharisees. Lord, this, this is the Jesus that I want. That's a really dangerous place to be. And so the Pharisees ask for a sign. But I want you to now to consider Jesus' response. And first he says, it's an evil generation that seeks a sign. Matthew 12, 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Beloved, listen to me. Signs come as part of God's mercy to us. They are gifts. Jesus never performs one on command. He's not a little chihuahua that you can say, sit boy, right? Do you remember in Matthew 4 when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? What did Satan tempt him to do? To prove he was the Son of God. Hey, if you're really the Son of God, turn these rocks to bread. Jump off this cliff. Put him to the test. Come on, if you're, if you're the Son of God, prove it. Perform for me, Jesus. And so the, the Pharisees are acting like the devil. Do you see this? This is nothing new. If you go back to the book of Exodus, the Israelites were in the wilderness. Now remember what God has done for them. He's brought them out of Egypt, rescued them uh, from slavery. He's brought the part of the Red Sea, brought them through the sea into the wilderness on towards the promised land. And though they've seen many, many miracles, they start to complain and grumble and test God. I want to read from you from Exodus chapter 17, verses 2, and then we're going to skip down to verse 7. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, and notice that they're quarreling, give us water to drink. So they're not asking God, Lord, provide. They're demanding, perform for us, Lord. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? In verse 7, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, get this, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, God, prove yourself again and again and again. In the New Testament, God uses signs and wonders to validate that Jesus is the Messiah. In the apostolic age and today, uh, signs and wonders are for the benefit of unbelievers. Do you remember when uh, Peter and John joined with other people uh, in a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4? They had just been threatened by the Sanhedrin. They were told by the rulers, listen, you better not teach or preach in the name of Jesus or it'll be the end of you. And so they, they gathered together in prayer. And here's what they prayed. Lord, give us boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel. And then they said this. They asked God this. And back up what we're preaching with signs and wonders. They're asking God to back up the message. What they're not doing is saying, God, prove yourself to us again by showing us signs and wonders. Do you see the difference? Friends, I want to be as gentle as I can here, but I worry about Christians who always need to see something. Oh, Lord, this morning, we just need signs and wonders. Lord, we just need to see something. Strengthen our faith. 
Many believe that if signs and wonders are not happening in our service, it's that we've not had church. And to be sure, I'm not knocking spiritual gifts that we use to minister to one another. I'm talking about signs and wonders. I'm talking about miracle chasers. You know what the issue I think is? The the issue with many um, quote-unquote Christians is that the Word of God is not sufficient. Faith in God. Listen, does Hebrews 11.1 not say that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? Not seen. But yet Christians who have known the Lord, oh Lord, I just need to see something. I just need to see something, see something, see something. And Jesus says it's an evil, an adulterous generation who chases after those things. And he goes on to say, there's only going to be one sign given and it's the sign of Jonah. Now what does that mean? Matthew 12, 39 and 40. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a well or a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. So you remember the story of Jonah? The book of Jonah testifies of his, uh, gives his testimony. He lived three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. He emerged miraculously three days later to preach to the people of Nineveh. He was in the fish because he ran from what God had called him to do. Don't run from God's call. You might end up in a fish, all right? The Pharisees, think of this. Let's go back to our text. The Pharisees are plotting to take Jesus' life. They're going to succeed. He's going to soon be crucified. And Jesus says to them, listen, you want me to perform for you today. You want me to move this mountain. You want me to to do something grand. But I tell you, I'm going to give you one sign only. And it's going to be the sign of Jonah. What's he talking about? It's his resurrection. As Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so Jesus will be in a tomb for three days. And as Jonah emerged from the fish, so Jesus will emerge from the tomb. (laughs) That's the sign. The scribes and Pharisees have been trying, understand this. Remember, there's crowds of people around who are wondering, man, this, they're, they're thinking of Jesus. This guy is amazing. But the Pharisees are trying to get them to turn their back on Jesus. Hey, this guy's a fraud. He's not really the Messiah. That's what they want them to believe. But when he's raised, the Pharisees are the, the, the ones who will have egg on their face, so to speak. And the world will see that Jesus is who he claimed to be. By the way, people make fun of us now. Oh, you believe in that hocus pocus? You believe in Jesus? You really believe in his resurrection? Beloved, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We will be vindicated. And the world will know. The atheist will know. The agnostic will know. Those who have mocked God and persecuted God will know that Jesus is in fact Lord. And so Jesus says, listen, uh, verse 41, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So Nineveh, that's where that, those are the, the people that... Jonah preached to, okay? They were in Nineveh. Men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Like what in the world is he saying? 
Listen, the people of Nineveh, you go back to the book of, uh, of Jonah, you'll, you'll realize this. The people of Nineveh were an especially wicked, pagan, brutal people. That's why Jonah didn't want to go there. He didn't want them to be saved. He thinks, man, anywhere else, but I don't want to talk to these people. I don't want them to repent. You ever known somebody like that? You're like, you know, I want everybody to be saved, but I'm not so sure you want to send me to that person. God sent Jonah then to preach the message of impending judgment. And here's what's interesting. Jonah performed no signs or wonders. He just preached. And yet, I want you to hear how the people of Nineveh responded. This is Jonah 3, 5, and 6. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. That's a, uh, that's a demonstration of repentance. From the greatest of them to the least of them, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. This would be like word getting to a prophet coming here and giving us judgment, right? A word of judgment. So repent or else, and we all just repent, and word gets to Biden, and Biden removes his crown, so to speak, and repents and falls on his face and gets on the news and said, people, repent. How cool would that be? The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, a sign of repentance. And because of their sincere repentance and belief, God relented concerning the impending judgment. Think about this. The people of Nineveh were not God's covenant people, were they? They did not have his law. They were pagans. Yet they repented at Jonah's simple words. But on the contrary, the Israelites in our text, are they God's covenant people? Yes. Have they known the Lord? Have they known his law? Yes. And what Jesus says is this, you have witnessed a greater prophet than Jonah, talking about himself, who has performed miracles validating his own Messiahship, and yet they refuse to repent. And many of them will still not repent after the resurrection because they're so hard-hearted. Friends, the resurrection was and forever shall be a sign, but it's not the sign the Pharisees were working for. And for that, here's what the text is saying. They will stand under the condemnation of the repentant people of Nineveh at the final judgment. That's amazing. And then Jesus uses a similar illustration. Look at 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now what's this about? This is a lot for Sunday morning. I'm sorry. First King tells us the story of the queen of Sheba. Called the king of the south. She, she was queen of the country of the uh, Sabaeans. And she was, again, referred to, they called her queen of the south. And the Sabaeans were very wealthy but very pagan people. But do you know this prominent queen traveled with an entourage miles upon miles, hundreds of miles to get to King Solomon, to, to learn from him, to sit at his feet and to pay him homage. And so Jesus makes this a comparison again between this, the, the rebellious Israelites who reject him and the queen of Sheba who went to great lengths to get to Solomon. One of God's kings. 
And consequently, he says, listen, she went there to, to learn to, the, to, to, to gain wisdom, but you reject me and I'm a greater king. And thus, you're going to stand condemned even by the faith of the pagan queen. The religious leaders, listen, they're so hard-hearted that they miss the fact that in their midst, remember Jonah was a prophet, Solomon a king, and the religious leaders who know the Old Testament frontwards and backwards, they missed that the greatest prophet and the greatest king, the king of kings, the prophet of prophets, is right in their midst. That's what hardness of heart and self-righteousness does to us. And it seems to me that at this point, after speaking directly to the religious leaders, Jesus kind of broadens his audience and he begins to speak to the crowd. And I'm almost done, but hang with me. Remember, many of Jews have been standing around watching this. They've witnessed Jesus uh, heal and deliver this man, and, but on, and they want to follow him. They think, man, this guy's great. But on the other hand, they see the men, these religious leaders who they greatly respect, saying, no, he's not the Messiah. He's not the way. He's of the devil. And they're torn. They're at a crossroads. Do they listen to their leaders whom they respect and follow them, rejecting Jesus? Or do they embrace the one who has poured out compassion and love and demonstration of God's power? So Jesus begins to talk to them graciously. And he starts with a warning, but then he moves to an invitation. And so this is an even odder text uh, here. I had my work cut out for me this week. But Jesus uses a parable. This is a parable, by the way. This is not an instruction booklet for exorcism. This is a parable, and he uses it to communicate a warning to his audience. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit, this is a demonic spirit, has gone out of the person, it, a, a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. And then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order and then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the state of the, that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this in, evil generation. What in the world? <laughs> it's a perplexing passage. But I think it helps to, to think about what's just happened. Remember, Jesus has just cast out a demon from an oppressed man. You remember this. A man that was blind and mute, and now he can see and speak. The demon is gone. His house, as it were, is void of evil. He's in his right mind. He maybe has peace for the first time in ages or maybe ever. And if that demon, Jesus is using this parable, if, 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 if that demon cannot, as it went from him, and cannot find a satisfactory host. Remember when Jesus cast... Um, we, we, we study the demoniac, I think it's in Matthew 8. And Jesus cast the demons, the legion of demons out of the man, and they went into the pigs. The demons want a host, and they prefer humans. If not, uh, if they can't have a human, they want an animal. Okay? So you're crazy cat. <laughs> Might just pray over it today. Sorry, Dina. But here's what's happened. The, man, the demon has gone from this man. And if the demon comes back finding no place to go and sees 
the host, the man, his house, swept them in order. He might try to re-inhabit that own house. What's that mean, swept in an order? I think this is the point. If the man, the, the man's life has changed, right? I mean, he, the demon's been cast out. He's, he's reformed. He's changed. But if that change does not lead to true faith in Christ, then the house is still in a place where the enemy can take residence. And that enemy can come back in if it does not find that Jesus is the king of his heart, can take up residence, and the end will be worse than the beginning. Think about all the people through Matthew who've experienced healing and deliverance. Listen, there's no indication as to whether or not they actually followed Jesus after that. Some of them did. Some of them probably didn't. And if you are touched by Jesus, but you don't follow Jesus, your end will be worse than your beginning. You are not saved if you do not make that commitment. Your life may be changed in a way. Because you might listen to some of his teaching. You might try to be more moral or ethical. But if you do not have true faith in Christ, if you've not submitted to him as Lord, you're not saved. And see, this, is, this parable is given not really to talk about the man that was just healed, but to demonstrate what's going on with the Pharisees. The Pharisees' house, so to speak, it's swept, it's neat, it's in order. They're moral, decent people. But because they've rejected the Messiah, they have opened themselves up to the enemy. And they're worse, their, their end will be great, uh, worse than their beginning. I've worked with drug addicts for many years. Um, many who have prayed for God to deliver them and to turn their lives around. And by God's grace, he's done that on many occasions. But the ones who, who take that mercy gift from God but go no further... And do not give their lives wholly to Christ. Do not connect to a church. Their house stays empty and that addiction often comes back. And the worst is almost all, the end is almost always greater than the beginning. Do you get, do you get the point here? I know it's a lot this morning. But some of you have experienced the grace of the Lord in your lives. He's helped your marriage. He's healed you physically. He's brought you out of depression You've learned from his teachings, but you've not committed your life to him. He's not the treasure of, uh, of your heart. And, and the tragedy is, the danger of being a decently moral people is that you don't even recognize it. You, like the Pharisees, think you're okay. Reformation, hear me, without a relationship with Jesus is way more dangerous than a blatant sinner. Because a blatant sinner, blatant sinner knows that he needs the Lord. He knows he can't earn his way to God. So be careful, oh religious person. Jesus moves from the warning to an invitation. Let's close on a really good note, okay? Look at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand and towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
After the resurrection, Jesus' brothers came around and, and one of his brothers even led the, the Jerusalem church. But do you know that when Jesus was growing up and before his, he died and, and was raised, do you know that even his own family questioned his authority and the fact that he was the Christ? John 7, 5 explicitly tells us that. His brothers did not believe in him. Very clear. And at this point in Matthew 12, it seems to me that they're approaching him. You know, Jesus is fighting with the most powerful people amongst the Jews. He's arguing with them. And the family seems to be concerned for his welfare. And they come to him and say, listen, Jesus, just come on home. Come on, you're not thinking rightly. And Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, you know who my mothers and brothers and sisters are? The people who do the will of my Father in heaven. The people who follow me. And what he's doing is he's just giving the crowd of people a warning. Don't follow the Pharisees. Don't just try to be moral people. That's not the way to God. Follow me. Repent. Turn to me. Receive me. And when you do, (laughs) it's mind-blowing. This is God the Son, not just the Son of God. Get what I'm saying? He's, he's, he is God, the second person of the triune Godhead. And that being, you know what he did? He gave you and me and that crowd of people on that day and every human being an invitation. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You can't get to God on your own, but come to me. Come to me. I'll give you rest. And then you, it gets even better. You're my family then. <laughs> Do you know that, that you are part of the family of God Almighty if you are in Christ? It's a great invitation. So I'll just leave you with the question today. Some of you have experienced the grace of Jesus at some level. His love, His compassion. You feel pretty good about yourself. Your house is swept and clean, but you're void of that true relationship. And so you have the choice of the crowd in the text today. Am I going to follow the, the road of reformation and self-righteousness? Or today, am I going to turn to the only one who can save me? Oh, friend, don't walk out of this room today. If you're watching online, don't go another day. Don't watch another video until you fall down at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't clean myself up. I can't get to God. I see your beauty, and I want to follow you. Save me, oh God. Today is the day of salvation. And the Lord cares about you, friend, so much so that he gave his life on your behalf. So today, the choice is yours. You're going to follow your way or his way? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' good name. We pray, oh God, that we would not be like the Pharisees with moralism tacked onto our lives without any relationship. Let us guard from reformation without relationship. There's one here today that's not made that commitment to repent and to follow you. May this be the day today. For all of us who 
are in Christ. We thank you. May we remember today as we prepare for communion and for praise and worship, may we remember that you gave it all so that we can live. And may we worship you with our whole hearts. We love you, God, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.